How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 90. 90. Nine, wow. This is 90? This, this is episode 90, yeah? Oh my that goodness. sounds weird going into 90. We're in the 90s. But this is, we are into the 90s. Yeah. And it's my turn to do the quote. Oh my god. Isn't this nice that you, you've brought a new aspect to this show? I know. And we've new, kept it going. New little category. I prefer this over your uh, social distancing segment you oh, tried to bring. I, I like that segment. It was funny. <laughs> are you ready? So, <laughs> All right, you, here we just go. give me a quick update. It's 5-4. You were 5-4, so you ended up... Getting more right than wrong mm. quotes. Are we going to keep the score going, um, or do we well, reset at the end of every decade? Are we going to continue this for the rest we of might, our lives? We might as well do it. We just okay. keep fighting it out. I don't mind that. Okay, we can do. Oh, right, so to the end of time. Right. Well, my, I'm I'm good because we started yours in like '82, maybe. Yes. So assuming we go to the year 2000 or episode 100, I'm probably going to have a couple more quotes. Than you did. That's okay. But it, was, it depends on the ratio. It's not a big deal. If we're going to the end of time, I'm going to beat you anyway. <laughs> All right. Eventually. Are you ready for your 1990 film? I think Jake? so. All right. This will right. be fun. I haven't done this yet. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. This is good. This is from the movie Goodfellas. This is from the movie Goodfellas. Yay. Congrats, Jake. It's, I guess, 5-5. Five, 5-5? Five. Oh, we like combining our scores. Is that what it is? Oh, I thought we were doing that. No, I thought we were versing each other. I oh, so we were... like the series is 1-0 now, technically? Yeah, so I would be 1-0. In... in this series? Yes. So it would have to be two decades per series. So we could see who's... This is very confusing. Yeah, let's just... I, I got the quote. Let's do the quote. <laughs> I'm let's happy just go about with the that. quote. Yes. I'm glad. For this, for the 1990s decade, Jake, mm. you have gotten one out of one so far. Yay. And I got five out of nine yes. in the previous one. Cool. Perfecto. Let's move into one of our old segments, Jake. What have we caught <laughs> up? classic segment on the cinemas on <laughs> 90 weeks. I was going to say, when it gets to 100, is it then just deemed classic? Yeah, much, much like the classics that we watch... Almost each and every week. Okay. Well, Jake, what have you caught in the last week? I've only caught one film this past week. Wow, that's that's meaty. I know. <laughs> it is a meaty film. It's been one of those weeks. So yeah, that's it's all right. Just relaxed. But that's okay, because it was a good one. So I watched The Trial of the Chicago 7. Mm. Now, this is a brand new film from Mr. Aaron Sorkin, who I love dearly, and will be available on Netflix in a couple of weeks. So I saw this at Backlot. Nice. And, um... It's a good one. This is a very, very good film, Zeke. Yeah. Entertaining, engaging. Very entertaining. So this um, is a very... drama film. Yes. So what this is based on, this is based on true events, is, uh, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was basically a protest in 1968 amidst, um, God, who was it that came in after to JFK? It was, um, he Brian Cranston played him recently a few years back. Oh, now I'm forgetting. See, this is what happens. I don't write these notes and then I just forget basic facts i'll check it for you buddy thank you um oh god now now i feel like a fool lyndon johnson that's it i figured it lyndon, lyndon b johnson lyndon b johnson the lyndon 36th b. Johnson. president of the united states of america <laughs> thank you mr fact checker <laughs> so it's sort of in the context of him coming in and uh i believe the vietnam war was going on and it's all about drafting and that people are being drafted and then i think he's coming out of 
uh, office. So a group of people come together to do a protest uh, to essentially fight back against this. Mm -hmm. And it focuses on several different characters who all are sort of targeted once these protests turn into riots. And yes, it is very reminiscent of a lot of modern day political context of the year 2020. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of people played by Sasha Baron Cohen and uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Eddie Redmayne's in it. Mark Rylance is like one of the uh, the lawyer, I suppose, for the Chicago 7. And mm -hmm. the idea is that they are trying to pin this as like a planned uh, sort of event, that they were, tr they were actively protesting to rile up the police, that this is something they were actively trying to do. And their defense is, no, we're not, because it's full of a bunch of hippies and Black Panther members and like all these people that they're sort of trying to collectively put together as like this radical left group and we're trying to get them. So this is all based on a true story from the late 60s and this is about the trial that went on for, I think, 151 days this trial went on for. Okay. So the majority of the movie is the trial with a couple of flashbacks. And yeah, it's really excellent. Aaron Sorkin's writing is as top-notch as ever Be because it it is quite similar to The Social Network in terms of a lot of the film is sort of law lingo. There were mm -hmm. some lines, I was like, that is like a line ripped out of Social Network right there. Um, in terms of how you say something in a in a courtroom, but I it was really excellent. It was really entertaining and and weirdly cheesy at times, which I think you will understand once you watch the film. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I thought it was top notch, and I think we should absolutely do this later in the month as as a proper episode cool. when it comes to Netflix. Not going to say no to that. Yeah, it's a good um, one. I managed to go as of today. I managed to get all oh, seven for seven in Yay. the last week. Um, so I'd watched seven new films, including the film of the week. So that's nice. Um, I've just checked the current day number is 278 and I've watched 256. 278. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, and I've watched 256 new films this year. So I'm three weeks behind. That's oh right. boy, it's going to be a big run home. Um, so oh, 278 is the days. The current day number. Gotcha. Okay. And I've watched 256 films. That's still very impressive. Thank you. I want to get it this year, though. I'm going to get it. It's going um, to happen. So, Netflix did a really big dump of films this week. I don't know if you noticed, Jake. Yes. A lot of films from particularly the last year or the last two years. I noticed Birds of Prey on there. Which yeah. Like, oh, that's pretty um, quick. Some pretty big ones that had Oscar buzz when they came out, too. Um, uh, I think... You know what? There's one you're about to talk about that's very much like the film I just discussed. Okay. So, we had Just Mercy. That's the one. And Richard Jewell. Which I both... still haven't seen Richard Jewell. Okay. Well, it's been dropped on Netflix now, so you can give there that you a go. watch. I can watch it this week. Um, I quite enjoyed Just Mercy. Yep. I think you watched this earlier in the year. Yeah, like just before COVID. Both sitting on the same three and a half rating. Um, yeah. Great performances from Jordan and Fox. Yeah, um, they're great in film. Uh, and I guess Brie Larson's fine. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I thought Brie Larson was great in this film too. Okay. Um, I think Jordan really steals the show. Mm -hmm. um, I think Fox is good, um, but isn't uh, his latter scenes are stronger than his earlier scenes. Okay. Um, I think he got nominated for a Golden Globe. Okay. I'm not I thought sure Jordan, about I thought Jordan stole the show with it. Okay. Um, great performances. They're probably my favorite part of the film. I don't think mm. the, uh, the, the cinematography is anything... Uh, to write home about, I mm. think it, like you said, it it probably although I haven't seen the Sorkin film, it's very trial heavy film. So a lot of the yeah. cinematography is very much limited to just courtroom stuff or interviewee style because Jordan goes around and puts mm. compiles his case. Um, 
some of the times they do get to flex their DOP muscles, particularly in the uh, death scene um, for, um, I think it's, um, I'm trying to remember, the one that gets electrocuted about midway through. Um, oh, yeah. Who I'm plays I'm Herbert Richardson, played by Rob Morgan. Um, his scene has a bit of stylism to it, a bit of pacing, but um, yeah, I think for the most part, the, the strongest part of the film is the performances. Um, I would also say that that is the same thing when it comes to Richard Jewell. I think uh, it's pretty hard to get bad performances out of people like Kathy Bates and Sam Rockwell. Mm. I mean, come on now. She she just appeared on The Office in the sixth season that I'm watching, <laughs> Kathy Bates. Uh, for Paul Wal- uh, Walter Hauser, um, I think this is probably the best performance I've seen from him. Okay. I didn't really like him in I, Tonya. Um, yeah, well, he's kind of an asshole in I, Tonya. Yeah, and he's probably my most... Uh, he, between him and the, his best friend are the two most... And I guess mm-hmm. they are just asshole characters, so they're just doing their job. But for him, I like this performance from him. Um, in terms of Eastwoods, it's not his best, it's not his worst... From a directorial uh, standpoint. From a directorial standpoint, yeah. it's not nearly as bad as The Mule. It's much better <laughs> than The Mule. But, and I probably enjoyed Richard Jewell more than I enjoyed Sully. So, okay, um, I'm not a big fan of Sully. Mm. Um, but it's no million dollar baby or Unforgiven. Yeah. Like, but that's just another league. Um, so, uh, yeah, those two I felt, you know, I also managed to catch, uh, uh, another quite pleasant, just uh, rom. Uh, I guess just a, I guess a comedy film, family comedy film. That mm. instant family just got oh, added. I, in you the were last... telling me about that. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was very fun. Yeah. It was just who, who's in it? Uh, that it will be um, Mark Wahlberg oh, and sorry, Rose Byrne. Cool. You did tell me about that. Yes. Um, cool. Fine. It's fine. It's a popcorn. It's easy, fun. Easy watch. Yeah. Um, has good laughs. Um, and has a nice, you walk out with a nice, warm, wholesome family feeling. So that's nice. It's it's Um, always sweet today. (laughs) It is very sweet. Uh, And then just switching into um, the only other films other than the film of the week I watched were, uh, so I watched Damsel, which is the latest, uh, well, a 2018 film starring Robert Patterson and sort of talking about the, uh, it's directed by uh, the Zellner brothers, I'm guessing, David and Nathan. Um, I believe this might be their... They've got a collection of stuff on Letterboxd, but I'm not sure how many of them are features. Apparently... You should be able to check on there. um, Kumiko, The Treasure Hunter, is apparently a film that they've done, but it's looking like this might be their second feature length. Oh, maybe their third. Um, But, yeah, it's a good film. It sort of ties into the... Obviously, Damsel kind of implies that this is about, you know, a cowboy rescuing a girl, but that sort of ends up taking a turn very quickly. And it's about Patterson uh, taking this uh, celebrant character along with him to marry to his uh, love of his life, only for it to take a turn mm. and sort of be a play on the loneliness that isn't often discussed in the Western motif. It's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Got great performances. Nice. Um yeah, it's nice, nice uh, little gem on uh, Netflix. I've noticed that I'm looking at their filmography collectively, and David has directed way more films than Nathan has. So maybe okay. they're only a recent duo. Yeah, maybe they finally decided to team up. Mm. And the only other two films I caught during the week were two documentaries. 
I watched uh, both are 2020 releases, so that's cool. Oh, brand new, um, brand new. American Murder, The Family Next Door is a um, sort of a uh, compilement of uh, videos from Facebook and text conversations all put together to stylistically frame uh. Uh, the murder surrounding uh, a, wi- a wife and her the two daughters. Yeah, I got uh, Shannon Watts. And Shannon the, the reason I sort of just did an R is because I've walked past my mum watching this film. Yeah. I thought it was a miniseries because I swear I've, I've seen it like on like this whole time. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> only it, a, only yeah. an 83 minute film. Yeah. Um, I thought it was fine. I didn't like it all that much. Okay. Um, I feel like it's probably maybe 25, 30 minutes too long. Um, Jesus. It's not, it's not that long to begin with. <laughs> no. Um, I did one. I like sort of the way that they've tried to bridge the gap because they have no talking heads. They basically just compile a bunch of messages that, that, that between the, uh, Shannon and her husband, uh, compile. And then just the, the three or four days between police camera footage from, uh, mm. officers, cameras and stuff. They've compiled, all that together. So it's like a found footage film. Type. It's completely found footage. Interesting. Um, with a couple of drone shots. Um, I don't know if it's enough. Um, <laughs> this reminds me of the drone shots from the Michael Jackson yeah, one. <laughs> would have made a great, really good tight 60, yep. maybe, but no more than that. And I think it goes on. I found myself, after the certain revelations come to light, it goes on for another 35 minutes. And it's oh, sort of like... Okay. Does it need to? Not well paced and no, not well paced at all. I can appreciate they're trying to do like this diegetic only approach though. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I don't know. Oh well. Okay, and then to finish off, I actually just watched this uh, before starting the recording. Ooh, uh, another twenty twenty release. Uh, it's an indie documentary called Dick Johnson is Dead, and it follows. Wait, Dick Johnson's dead? <laughs> well. You'll have to find out by watching the documentary. And it basically follows uh, a daughter, a documentarian daughter, um, following the final years of her dad's life. And Mm. sort of um, throughout the film, they're recreating like random deaths for this. uh, It's really, it's quirky, but it's creative. It's very strange. And it's got a lot of heart in it. Um, they talk about how her mother and obviously Dick's uh, wife uh, passed away 15 years earlier through dementia and stuff like that. And he's starting to develop the early signs of dementia. Mm. And it's sort of got that immersive... Perf- oh, not necessarily... It definitely has more observation than performative aspects to it. But you do see uh, the filmmaker... I'm just going to get her name up now. I'm going... Uh, the director? Yes, uh, Kirsten Johnson. Kirsten Johnson. Um, ah, and it sense. sort of mixes in, um, jokingly, they add a lot of um, his accidental deaths, sort of like... And basically, the film serves as a platform to have more of a psychological exploration in the idea of death mm. and how... Um, to the point where, in the latter parts of the film there's a really cool thing that they do and I'm not going to tell you it because I actually really want you to watch this documentary. I like the sound of that. But it's very much like I was so impressed by what they were trying to say and it's just such a unique angle to take um, 
and it ha- and it mixes the perfect balance between personal. There's no talking heads other than and Dick and Dick's friends, you know. Right. Only when he's in the room, though. So it's like very much like we are just following him and his interactions. Um, right. So you wouldn't really consider that talking heads then. Yeah, and he's yeah. not like an actor. He's not from a creative background. He was a mm. psychologist. Yeah. And his daughter was a documentarian and was like, can we make a film about you dying? And spliced in between all of the reality stuff is they do scenes where he dies in accidental funny ways. Like right. one of them, he's walking down the street and one of those air cooler units from the side of buildings falls on him. <laughs> um, God, what does that remind me of? There's some parody. Just dumb ways to die, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, isn't, that the, isn't that the name of the online series thing? Dumb yeah, that's try. what I was going for. Oh, there you go. Cool. <laughs> um, really cool. Really cool documentary. One of those, like, you just... Mm. And it's got that perfect mix of comedy and heart and some seriously sad, like, moments mixed right. in with some really blissfully nice moments. So it gets you in the feels. Yeah, I think this film, when it did come out, get a, got a lot of praise. It's currently sitting on four out of five on Letterboxd, too, oh, which is that's nice. that's pretty good. I also gave it a four. Yeah, look at that. So there you go. Um, that's all I watched. That's all way. you watched. <laughs> Disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So do you have anything sure. you'd like to add in the career section part um, of the show? Not really this week. I've, I finished editing the video for Gene Williams and Guy Gauss, but, uh, I think they, they're busy people, so they haven't approved it yet. But, um, hopefully that goes up very soon on the Backlot Studios or back, what, which page would it be? The back, live at Backlot, personal, mm-hmm. up close and personal, that's it facebook page i got it (laughs) so that would be that career update for me yeah i've got nothing to add right now i'm sure i'll have a couple more things in the next few weeks but right now just gonna knuckle the ship yeah just braving the storm (laughs) no worries i guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week but jay nice what are we watching this week on the show we're watching the virgin suicides all to understand those five girls who after all these years we can't get out of our minds in an ordinary suburban house a lovely tree-lined street in the middle of 1970s america lived the five beautiful dreaming lisbon sisters whose doomed fates indelibly mark the neighborhood boys who to this day continue to obsess over them that, that logline makes much more sense now that we've seen the film, Zeke. <laughs> it does. It does. So, just to confirm, Jack, this is the feature debut for Sofia yes, Coppola. Yes, it is. The um, directorial debut. Okay, We cool. still haven't done our shirt yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 99s. This is also a 90s film. Yes. Breaking into the 90s. It feels very 90s, considering you're right. We're right at the very end of the decade. Um, yeah. I had a lot of Donny Darko feelings when I was watching oh, this okay. film. I don't know if that's very... Maybe it's just the feel of the 90s. Um, maybe it was the school uniforms that looked <laughs> near identical in some points. Where I well, there, like, there, was, there were several films I tied this to, okay. which I'll get into in a bit. But Was rem- Donny Darko on that list? No, it okay. wasn't. It reminded me of David Lynch films a little bit. It reminded me of Goodfellas, ironically, the film you quoted earlier, and I'll get to why in a moment. And the last one was Dogtooth, which we did in episode six. I give you Dogtooth. Good yeah. good pick. I think very maybe similar this, thematically, for sure. Maybe this was a Lanthimos-inspired sort of situation with Dogtooth, mm. maybe. 
the the kind of the whitish the white off white aesthetic that's in Dogtooth kind of right. comes over into suicides. Um, okay, so we've done Marie Antoinette on the show. Yes, episode uh, sixteen. We both watched Lost in Translation. Yep, which um, I I made sure to check. We discussed it in episode forty because that was when I first watched it. Okay, so if you want to hear a five minute discussion of it, you can go to episode forty. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, and we're both. Uh, I like Lost in Translation mm-hmm. and was fine with Marie Antoinette. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I've never been super on board with uh, Coppola's style, I guess. Okay. Like, not overly into it. But I have to say, I, I really am starting to enjoy some of her work between this and Lost in Translation. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed this film. Yeah, I because I'm with you. We've we've both seen both those films and now this film mm-hmm. uh, from her. And of course, she's got a new one that's out now on the rocks, which we're both going to see hopefully very soon. Mm. And this might be is, talking about that later in the show. We just might be Zeke, <laughs> but this is probably my favorite film of hers thus far out of the three. Okay, because I know you're you're a bit more high on Lost in Translation. Than I am. I think it's great, but it just didn't speak to me at the time. I probably needed to watch it at a different part of point in my life. But I just really appreciated this film for for many reasons. But it's a strong debut for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know it's funny. I'm. Uh, I walked out of this and I was. I remember finishing it and going, oh, mm. "That was really good. That was a good two hour twenty minute film." And I checked oh, it was really? hundred minutes. It felt <laughs> long. There were oh. some slow bits in this. Okay. I've had a couple of people um, watch this film in the last week. Not coincidentally. Uh, coincidentally, <laughs> no, um, I was like, they want to listen to our, our thoughts on it. And <laughs> they said to me, they're like, "Man, it's slow." And I'm like, "I Who can't." Told you it's slow. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hunt them down. Really? You didn't think? It... Well, look, it's not a fast-paced film, but I wasn't bored at any point in the film. No, but I, th- but I don't mean slow. Like, if I say something's boring, something's boring. But if I say mm. something's slow, I don't necessarily it's different. mean it's yeah, boring. Yeah. I mean, um, I never was bored. In any of this, mm. I think um, I can totally see your um, in terms of the films that you were comparing it to. I definitely see the Lynch sort of weird sort of mysticism vibe. Yeah, the the very opening scene is very reminiscent of Blue Velvet in like the the normal suburban neighborhood vibe, but there's like a sinisterness under it mm. that we've yet to see. Mm. That gave me total Lynch vibes, Pat- particularly when you look at the latter parts of the film, mm. um, and particularly the final scenes with the uh, the use of color in that scene, which I'm sure we'll get to a little bit later on. Mm. But I could see that, um, and maybe that's why I had the same thing with Donnie Darko, because I think Donnie Darko does that too, suburban life with the real yeah, dark sort of honor and mysterious sort of stuff. Um, in that though, it's a little bit more overt, obviously, with the whole rabbit and stuff like that. But mm. whereas this, oh, this one's way more like grounded. Uh, yeah, um, American Beauty, I could see to an extent too. Oh yeah, same year, I believe. Ninety nine, yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, wow. Maybe two thousand, but very close in proximity. I think you're sure. right. I think it was ninety nine. Yeah. Um, I could see that. Too. Big, they were big emphasis on suburbia. I think in 99. That's actually a People thing. I think it. they actually talk about that a lot. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, no, um, I really enjoyed uh, a lot of aspects of this film. Um, and I could see your, I'm going to guess your Goodfellas tie to comes to the narration. Absolutely. 
Um, and just the fact that the older version of uh, Trip just looks like Robert De Niro. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right, the voice of it, I was like, this just sounds like Goodfellas. Mm. Like the the tone of his Very voice Very interesting um, choice bringing up the De Niro thing, the, the piece to camera yeah, presentation. Yeah. Um, there's some weird sort of almost genre-breaking stuff in here. Mm. Um, she wasn't afraid to get experimental, which I quite like. Because um, the trips piece to camera of the older version, him yeah, talking it's the him past, in the past, is the only is an isolated incident. For sure, I mean the film is definitely framed as this happened in the past. I mean, even the logline that we read earlier was, you know, in the nineteen seventies. It's very specifically this happened in the past. Mm-hmm. The voiceover is from someone in the present talking about the past. Someone so. is much older than the kids that we don't actually even know which kid it is who's narrating. Yeah, I, I didn't stop to check, so you're probably right. Well, I don't think it's meant to be deliberate. I think it's yeah, meant to be it could deliberate. Just be either of the kids, well, or any, any of the, kids. the the younger kids, because mm. there are, I guess, it's wrong to say two generations of kids, but I guess there are. There are the yeah, well, the, the younger kids and the the more age appropriate kids. Yeah. At, that you write at a certain point in the film. Both are at different a- ends of puberty, basically. Yeah, um, that's a good way to put it. Um, and I think that this. This film is kind of trying to talk about that scopophilic obsession with, uh, uh, well, that's pretty much at the core of what this is. It's scopophilic uh, mm. obsession, um, sort of the struggle between protecting and, and thriving in it, I guess, and how that obsession defines pretty much everyone's identity. Like, these girls are, in a lot of ways, all five of them are the cornerstone for everyone else's existence the world Mm. literally revolves around them whether it's to uh, obsess over them from a distance or to be involved in their lives or to be the parents constantly protecting them it's very much like they're this ethereal sort of force that everything revolves around well the thing that i took away is that they have so little i don't want to say personality but they're not individuals Maybe with the exception of, of Kirsten Dunst to an extent. And but, the youngest. And yeah, and um Cecilia, Cecilia. who of course is the first to die, as as the voiceover says. Mm-hmm. But that was my takeaway as well, is that we're seeing this from a perspective that's slightly askewed and it's these boys obsessing over these girls who you know, it's spoiler I guess again, you know from the beginning of this film, they're all gonna die. Interesting that American Beauty comes out in the same year and it's the same sort of thing. You know he's going to die. <laughs> I feel like some, a lot of people have said that about 1999, that there's yeah. a lot of things in common. But I don't know if I caught on it with American Beauty. I, guess, I know, I guess you're I mean, right. He says he's going to die within a year. Yeah, I guess. But I think that's a bit more abstract. Okay. I guess there was, in that, it, it, there was for, a part of me that, that didn't want to die. It's the whodunit in that situation. Yeah, that's Whereas a good point. in this one, they don't imply whodunit. They just say that they... Yeah. I mean, it's in the title. It's the title, exactly. So we know kind of how and the what hmm. but the driving question throughout is maybe it's the why but we also never really I would get say it's the, the why. why and the why because it's yeah. like what incites them to do yeah. it too um, and we never necessarily get that answer either no not really which is I uh, yes yeah, the, the point you're right because it's, it's a distance viewpoint and they're obsessing over these girls that maybe they're giving them the benefit of the doubt of like mm-hmm. well we love these girls and we get a, a hints of the suburban response to the suicides and the the people being like, oh, I'm a dumb teenager. I got problems there. Like making fun of the situation. 
but we get the perspective from these boys who don't make fun of it because yeah. they love them. Or they well, think the, they love the them. The only other um I also like that this film very much doesn't focus on any of the kids' parents, with the mm. exception of the Lisbon parents, who yeah. are the only two that really get face time. There are shots of parents, but for the most part, their dialogue's either off screen. I mean, there's multiple shots, like when mm. Cecilia dies, the shot of the two mums talking about how terrible it is, and but you don't see their faces, yeah. and all you see is a bunch of men just basically putting this new fence in. But for the most part, they're not focal points. It's very much no. uh, about the sort of the adolescent side of it. Um, with the exception of the two parents who don't really get a very... Uh, I mean, they have a conclusion, but the fallout from the final array of right. suicides, they you don't see their reaction or anything. It's very much like yeah. they just move away and that's what happens to them. The, what was the quote again they said? Something like, oh, they um, they were done trying to live a normal life. Something like yeah. that. And then, you're right, they just sort of disappear from the scene. But mm-hmm. it all adds to that mystery part because there's so many mysteries going on in this film yeah and and i think the lynch comparisons a very apt one because of so much of that undertone mystique mystique um that at first comes off as um that the obsession with these girls and sort of their untouched virtue is almost mythologized Mm. by not just the young adolescent but the older adolescent and that the build-up to um, sort of Dunce, eventually, Dunce's character, which is uh, Lux. Lux, yeah. Um, and her, Alex. her innocence lost is often the catalyst for all the changes and the, you know, the downfall of all the sisters, eventually. Mm. So, um, Well, as far as we know. I think that that's trying to be the, the correlating relationship. Yeah. I think... Um, that they're brought up in such a virtuous household and they're mythologized for that virtue, but as soon as that virtue's lost, things tend to spiral out of control. I mean, after uh, her incident with Trips, yeah, in which she a loses her, the, yeah, loses her, yeah, she becomes just a, a display. She, you know, mm. she is spending time with multiple men uh, over different nights and letting the boys of the neighborhood watch, basically. Yeah. Um, so there's nothing graceful about that at all. Well, um, it's interesting that that whole sort of arc, because it, it, for a while it feels like the film sort of deviates. So, like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna take a big detour here to do this whole thing with Trip, mm-hmm. and of course, it, you know, by the end you know that it's in service of that thing at the end where they're all going mm-hmm. to prom, and then that whole situation happens. I think that's when I got the dog two vibes. Is when I realized just how drastic the parents' reaction was mm. to her coming home. Really, the, just a few hours coddling. late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I can, I can agree to that too. Um, the overcoddling is what—it's a mixture of things. It's, mm. I think, at the end of the day, a lot of things benefit this film's use of tension and stuff. And it's sort of like because you know it's inevitable that they're going to to kill themselves. Mm. Um, it creates this sort of stew pot of what causes it. Is it the overcoddling parents? Is it the uh, teenage boys taking advantage? Yep. What like what's it? and really it's just sort of a pressure cooker allotment of the 
a lot of them. Mm. And the only people that the girls really take advantage of and aren't victims to are the younger adolescent boys because they're not at that age yet, really. Yeah. Well, uh, they have the deepest fantasization of the girls. Because, mm. like, even with Trip, the only reason you could argue he was even involved in this whole story with the girls is because Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Dunst's character, Lux, is the, was the only girl in high school that wouldn't give him the attention. Yeah. Because he was, you know, such the heart... He was a heartthrob and everything, and he's like, oh, well, I'm going to chase that girl, and then as soon as... To the point where even her dad and stuff are acknowledging that the mm. only reason, yeah, is because, yeah, she's ignoring him, and that negative reinforcement leads to it. Yeah. I like these characters a lot, by the way. I do, too. The Ronald... Mr. Mr. Ronald uh, Lisbon. Thing. Yes. Yeah. I really like... I, I think that what you're saying is like especially about the the sisters is yeah mm. a lot of them uh take a back seat to lux who is who's 14 and this whole uh movie only takes place over the course of a year mm. um it's not a long duration of time so for this senior to be like it's also that sort of situation you know he's a 17 18 year old and all his friends are 17 18 and he's trying to seduce this 14, 15 year old. It's, it adds that sort of dynamic too. Yeah. Um, it's, it is intrigue. Like it's, it's, there's a lot of layers to this film and you can totally see why I, I feel like this film is one of those films that gets put a lot into sort of analytical <laughs> terms. Yeah. Well, little... it, it became one of those like very quick cult classics mm-hmm. that you would call it. And I think, you know, we talked a bit about Sofia Coppola's like voice. Mm-hmm. You said that it kind of took you a few films to to really start to appreciate her films. Yes, because I think there is sort of a femininity, that's the word. Yeah, to her films, specific as in, you know, in this one, it's very clear sort of um, the female voice and how it's sort of molded by you know all oh, the boys chasing and the mm-hmm. parents. Uh, what was it? Over cuddling, you said. Coddling, coddling. That's the word. There you go. Um, but then you go into something like Lost in Translation where it's like, yeah, that that's a very easy film to be like, oh, well, here's the female perspective of like a much older guy coming in. But if that feels like the Bill Murray film in a way where mm-hmm. it feels like they're sort of giving a bit more of a voice to like the man in the position. Okay. I don't know. I've, I just feel like it's an interesting take that she tends to have on these kinds of films. I I think, yeah, I think she gives a good amount of time to, to Skojo, Skarjo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no, but in, I, just what I mean is like that. There's plenty of sympathy to be had for the character of, of Bill Murray's character. Yeah, yeah. I can like say it's that. not like a oh man bad man evil predator, and you you could make that argument I guess. But like even in this film, it's it was nice and what's well, good feeling. Like, yeah, there's the exactly. way that, uh, they very much. This film is this like I said this mythot like eventually it becomes this architectural construct to demythologize these girls and mm. as they lose their purity they lose that that semblance of of uh, mythology to mm. them at the start of the film they're getting it's not just uh, the young teenagers it's the old teenagers it's the the creepy postman they're all eating out of the palm this mm. this hand to the point where they like there are lines from the narrator saying he has no clue how these two uh, two parents yielded five such pretty oh, girls yeah. and stuff like that, where it's very much like... Um, but as the story goes on uh, and the darker it gets, 
um, you're slowly taking apart those walls of purity and essence, which I think is what she's trying to capture. Yeah. Um, and she does it through Lux's character because her character's going through the most transitional uh, uh, time, I think, in puberty, that sort of 14, 15, 16-year-old window. And um, Whereas the other girls, with the exception of the youngest, they don't get that characterization, mm. that depth of characterization. Um, They're very much seen as like a big, just group unit. And there's mm. so few times that they even, not even the fact that they don't get lines, but it's like, it, it just feels so clear what the intention is of having mm. them be quite characterless yeah. in a way. Well, and to I the point where there are multiple scenes, particularly in the first act before mm. Cece's death, where they're given the opportunity, they have like a piece to camera with one of the boys mm. and there's just nothing. There's just, they're not giving any chemistry or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and the only one that seems to have that sort of extra element is is um, Lux. And mm. she's the one who uh, is the only one that's willing to push the boundaries of what she's been coddled by, yeah. um, for better and worse. It, it, I mean, at first it seems like she's just trying to express herself as a teenager, but the longer it goes on, it becomes very apparent that she just has no control over what she's doing anymore. No, I, I definitely agree. I, I think the, the line... I wrote this down. The line that I think was really the, the key to the film mm-hmm. is this is during the voiceover when he says, if we kept looking... Uh, we, we believe that if we kept looking hard enough, we might be able to understand what they were feeling or who they were. Yeah. And I was like, that's such a great acknowledgement of just that. And I, and I agree that Lux, especially towards the end of the film, like, just the confidence that she owns in, like, yeah. the one of the very last scenes is okay there's a you see sort of the transition happen yeah but it's very apparent though it's i think it's little things like when she's sitting in the cinema and trips comes in oh yeah and they have their almost handhold moment where Mm. at this point there still has not been any lines or anything crossed and it's a foreshadow to what's to come yeah but in the background the doc that whatever they're watching is some form of documentary where they're talking about tornadoes (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> and I just was like, first thing I was like, well, they're equating her to a tornado, aren't they? I mean, the longer the longer the film goes on, the more out of control she's getting, um, and but the bigger she's getting, mm. and the the more confident and the more, but that confidence swings both ways. For yeah. every good decision she makes, it's really great, but for every bad decision, it has much larger ramifications, mm. um, and she claim she just seems to have less and less ownership. So. On what she's doing, yeah, and I mean that's the whole thing. Is by the end of the film, they've sort of made the ultimate decision, and that, and again, that's something that they don't specifically tell. I mean, they even say in the voiceover, "We don't know, like, in what order that they killed each other mm. or, or killed themselves, rather." Like, we kind of get hints of, "Oh, this one put her head in the in the oven," or also the most brutal one, by the way. Yeah, when that, <laughs> like, out of all of them, I was like, "Oh, okay." And then put the head in the oven. I'm like, what a terrible way to kill you. <laughs> yeah, Horrible. no, it's... it's it, but the fact... Yeah, the fact that they leave that a mystery of like, oh, well, we don't know the conversation that happened. We don't know... Uh, you can assume that it was all sort of this collective thought. We're going to do this together on the same night, but just through different means. I don't know. I just... I like the level of mystery that they leave. And I was surprised to learn that this is not based on any sort of true story, which is... That's a good thing, 
But of course, the truth is coming from the fact that, and they say it multiple times, is you know the suicide rate is so high, and that this is a, a common thing that a lot of young girls and stuff have oh, to yeah. go through. I think what what Coupler's trying to do here is she's trying to uh, demythologize the girl next door. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it throughout the film, it's a slow deconstruction of that to the point where by the end of the film, there's this sick algae. Uh, uh, some form of sick algae in the river that creates this green hue. Um, ah, yes, yeah, something like that. Uh, sickly hue, and and she actually calls back to the sickly hue quite a few times. It's much more subtle earlier on. It's particularly in the school. There's yeah. A lot, in uh, Mister Lisbon's classroom, it's quite a ugh, green. Um, and yeah, by the end, it's just overtly green, mm. but. Um, I think it's just little things like the tree being chopped down because of its sickness. Um, and that's that's actually one of the very few glimpses we do get of the girls is them protecting the trees. Oh, here's them being like a, a sisterly unit. Because mm-hmm. it's like up until that point, we don't know what the real reaction is to their sister killing herself. Yeah. They're so But that quiet. takes place way later. It's the, it's the first time they come out it's of way later, hibernation, yeah. Yeah. Post, uh, post-prom. And it very much feels like it's the last sort of stand that if they mm. lose that tree, they're losing any semblance of that innocence yeah. they once all had together. You can totally make the argument that that's like the moment where yeah. they just lost their last sort of piece of their of their mm. sister. Yeah, and it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly to the point where good. earlier in the film, that's one of the last shots that we see of the little sister of Cece. Mm. She's hanging in the tree, which I believe is the thumbnail for this week. Ah, yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because that that specific screen, and that's actually one of the very few times that I've screenshotted like the actual film. Usually, I find like a Google image or something, so the the color and all that's completely accurate this time. Huzzah! But that image comes from when the one of the young boys is like they're driving past a tree and he mm. fantasizes seeing her. Yeah. Much like um, James Woods fantasizes around the same time, he goes into the room and he sees the windows open or whatever, whatever the case is. And I thought that was a little underexplored, like the hallucination stuff that mm. they were seeing of her. I think it yeah. just comes back to it's that sort of like Lynch esque situation mm. where it's sometimes it's just not explained. It's just. Uh, part of that sort of borderline supernatural walking line which yeah. this film definitely wants to indulge in occasionally um i think things like making all the girls wear near identical prom dresses yes. <laughs> um, with slight variations all ethereal white colors it's mm. very much trying to innocence yeah virginity exactly. the color palette is a huge part of this film mm. i'm glad you picked up on that more because I wasn't really paying attention to the color, but oh yeah, the you color. are right with like the algae green and everything. Yeah, and that comes it? back as well because they all they all have the town has like a party. Yeah, the algae, then they've all got the mask. It's like that is so messed up, but it's all it's all in service of exactly. That, that concept. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I think um, before we move on, I'd like to talk a bit more about. I mean, we talked a bit about Sophia Coppola's sort of uh, the the feminine voice she has. I guess I I did yes. a little research into the making of this film because it is her featured debut and mm. of course her father is Francis Ford Coppola Ford Coppola so he fair to assume that he had some sort of hand in helping her mm-hmm. so he did co-produce this film and uh, in fact the two sort of because the, the two that actually get top billing in the film's credits is Kathleen Turner and James Woods as the parents and I think he was responsible for getting both of them 
onto this film. Okay. Did he work with James Woods? Because for a minute I was like, is he on The Godfather? No, he's not. So, um, I'm trying to figure out to my knowledge. Together. I know for a fact that he gave James Woods the script, and that's how he was like, oh, this is great. I want to work on it. And I'm pretty sure he worked with Kathleen Turner on something else. I'm blanking on the name of the film, but yeah, but he definitely had a big hand mm. in direct, which I think is nice because he definitely got some strong criticism of her performance in Godfather Part Three. So it's it's nice that he still had like like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna invest super deep in make in you making your own film, which is, I don't know it's a nice nice gesture yeah. I guess. <laughs> well, that's fair. Yeah. I mean. Um... I I can I can't really see his hand prints on this film. Not really. Um, well, that's another thing I appreciate. Is you're right. You can't. Their films are different from each other. I actually do equate a lot of the, particularly obviously the last shot is a very uh, it's a some form of dolly sort of shot that mm. pulls away from the kids as they look at the house. Um, that sort of stuff. I I feel like that was way more present in something like and I don't think Donnie Darko came out at this point, but some of the shots in Donnie Darko kind check of on that. I'm actually not sure, to be honest. Um, that's definitely the film that just struck the most similar sort of cinematic vibe to me. I'm 2001, actually, Richard Kelly. 2001, oh, there you go. So this film definitely came blank. first, so I guess Donnie Darko was in, had maybe inspiration from that, maybe, potentially, but... Um, I see we I see where you're coming from. With there are a couple Darko. of a couple of shots in there that are the same, um, but um, yeah, I would say that this definitely doesn't feel like anything that Francis Ford Coppola did. Mm. Um, Some, there there was one surrealist element. It's it's sort of the super close up of um, Lutz's face, but it sort of cross fades with the images behind it. That that was a bit apocalypse nowy. Mm. If we had to pick anything. But it definitely feels like at least it's still she's definitely had a, has a, a, for the most part, unique voice in this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would definitely say that it carries over to Lost in Translation and Marie Antoinette. Mm. Um, obviously, she must have loved Dunce's performance in this in order to carry her over to yeah, Antoinette. Exactly. I think they've worked several times yeah. since, so that um, makes sense. And she um, must like her, like that sort of strawberry blonde-esque colour because she comes back to it quite a few times between because uh, Scarlett Johansson's hair is sort of the same colour too yeah that's a good point maybe she likes that, that colour she's she, a blonde she likes the colours likes the blonde strawberry blonde um, yeah I don't really have anything else to to point out that I liked about this no? this film I really enjoyed it that's, um, that's fair enough uh, I guess I'll before we get in the highlight scenes I'll read off a quote okay. as you said because of course this is based on a novel from, I believe, 1993 of the same name by Jeffrey Eugene, Eugene Ides. Okay. Eugene I-D-E-S. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, and the, the, what she said about it, of course, this being her directorial debut, I really don't know... Oh, sorry. I really didn't know I wanted to be a director until I read The Virgin Suicides and saw so clearly how it had to be done. I immediately saw the central story as being about what distance and time and memory do to you and about the extraordinary power of the unfathomable. Which makes sense. Like you can't fathom five of your own daughters all killing themselves. Yeah. Like that's something you really can't. Particularly if you're the parent. mind of a twelve or thirteen year old boy at the time. Yeah, exactly. Sort of that innocence. We talked about in E. T. 
a yeah. perspective. It's a weird film to compare it to, but <laughs> nevertheless, we've done it. It's the point of the show, right? Ah, exactly. We'll point out all the things. All right, Zeke, well, what is your highlight scene? Oh, I struggled too, don't worry. This is a, this is a tough one. Um, can I... I would probably say, honestly, the fallout post I really like the last 10 minutes of this film. Okay. The algae party. And that last shot, I really like that last shot. The boys doing, like, the toasts. With yeah, the... but, like, just the weird sort of... It's kind of a slanted 15-degree dolly. I think it's a crane. It's a crane? Yeah. I guess it would be to have that smooth emotion. It, but it's a dolly action, though. Yeah, but doesn't... I think it gets high enough. Okay, probably let's, let's call it a, a crane for argument's sake, because I think it probably <laughs> was. Yep. Um, just in order to get that smooth motion, it probably was a crane. I really liked that shot. I was like, mm. oh, that's a really cool shot. And between that and then the sort of the same shot that they had at the start of the film of the house, but everything is clearly, it, it's got that sickly green. It's it, The tree's been chopped down. Yeah, it, it's everything's been it's removed. It's very apparent that this mythologization of this perfect suburban family has mm. been cut down and this is what's left slowly chipped away if you will yeah exactly yeah, yeah i had a couple of scenes to point to because like you i struggled it's hard when like a film like this doesn't really have a lot of like high moments you know there's, there's no scene where leonardo DiCaprio yells at a woman <laughs> you know mm-hmm. sort of hard to point um i like i wanted to give a shout out to cecilia's party early on just like the awkwardness of it and like when it's like, oh, the boys are coming over. That's cool. And then you realize, like, ah, oh, it's like four girls and four boys just sitting around. They, they don't really know how to talk to each other. And the closest they get even is to make fun of this kid. I believe he has Down syndrome or something mm. of that matter. They're making fun of some slow kid. Oh yeah, like that's, right. that's as close as they can get to like having a laugh together. These these boys and girls. Uh, I just liked all that. And of course, it leads into her like successful suicide attempt, which it's always a weird way to phrase it is a failed and successful suicide mm. I don't know and the other one is this sort of dwells into the surrealism aspect of the film but I liked once the girls were all locked up and the, the boys are sort of obsessing over them how do we get in contact with them they learn that they've been purchasing these magazines to fantasize about traveling which again it kind of leans into the idea they're probably just guessing that because yeah. how would they know that that's what the girls are actually doing but the fact that they also do that tradition and then imagine themselves in the photo frames of, oh, we went to Paris together and yeah. just all of those images. I thought that was a fun little way to play with the, like, clever way to do the filmmaking, I think, in that, mm-hmm. that scene. But um, no, that's what I think. Some good choices. Well, uh, mm. Virgin's, The Virgin Suicides is currently out in wide release. Is it on any streaming It's platform? on Stan. There you and go. And that's how I watched it. No worries. Well, I guess it's time to move into what is new on streaming platforms and cinemas this week, Jack. Well, there you go. Uh, not a crazy week this week, Zeke. Things are slowing down a little bit. Hubby Halloween comes to Netflix, which sees Adam Sandler play a good-natured but constantly teased by the town citizens. Uh, Hubby, who finds himself amongst a murder investigation. Is this the one that he made in spite of the fact that he didn't get nominated for an Oscar or something? Did oh, he make a joke? He's... I think he did say something like that. Like oh, I'm going get... to make another crappy film if I don't get nominated for something like that. Yeah, I seem to recall that. This might be the one. It's definitely one of his, you know, kitty dummy uh, comedy films, if you're into hey, those. It's where out. We think he was robbed too. So, you know what? <laughs> we deserve this. Yeah, we deserve this. <laughs> Um, and if you want to catch a classic in the cinemas, uh, Hoyt's are playing some early Bond films. 
they're playing. Didn't Doc- that get delayed again? Got delayed again. Yeah, and we called it last Thursday. We saw the trailer and like it's gonna get delayed again. And then like a day later, it did. Mm. Uh, but they are playing Doctor No, which is the first ever Bond film, and Goldfinger, which is the third one. So I believe those are both '60s films. And Zeke, I'm gonna be honest. I'm tempted to go watch Doctor No in a cinema because I've th- that would be my first Bond film, and is appropriately the first Bond film. That's it. Was pretty cool. I've never seen any outside of the Daniel Craig ones. Ah, well, there you go. So maybe I own... I, maybe I should come with you. There you go. I own Octopussy on Blu-ray, so <laughs> maybe we could watch that as well. <laughs> Just, Just burn through end. them all. Yeah, before, yeah. Well, uh... you know what? Maybe we can marathon in one week. And new to cinemas this week, you have Lucky Grandma, which sees a Chinese grandma in New York City's Chinatown go all in at the casino, consequently landing herself on the wrong side of luck. I saw the trailer for this week, and it seems fun. Seems Soderbergh-ish. Interesting. Which looks good. I like it. I think it's a foreign film, like foreign language film, but hey, we at the Cinema Sergio podcast... We like don't say no to a foreign language film. Exactly. Uh, the Outpost sees a small team of US soldiers battle against hundreds of Taliban fighters in Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, boy. Apparently, it's not bad. Let- okay. Letterboxd seemed to like it. The Letterboxd community. <laughs> Savage is inspired by true stories from New Zealand street gangs across the span of 30 years, and more specifically, three defining moments in the life of Danny, a young boy turned violent gang enforcer. This sounds like a white version of Moonlight. <laughs> Does it not? <laughs> Without the gay stuff? Well, yeah. It's just like, oh, three moments defining this young boy. That's true, actually. It's, instead of coming out as gay, he comes out as a violent gang member. Mm. So it's the white version. <laughs> Fair enough. And last but not least, My People, My Homeland is an anthology film consisting of five short stories with several different directors. And this acts up as a follow-up to the 2019 film My People, My Country. So there you have it, Zeke. New in cinemas. Da-da-da-da. Any of those intriguing? The grandma one? Lucky yeah. Grandma? Lucky yeah. Grandma, yeah. It looks good. However, Jake, <laughs> we're not watching any of those next week on the show. I but li- I like your voice drop there. What are we watching? This week on the show, ironically, we're watching... Or ne- I should say next week. Next week on the show, we're watching On the Rocks. Hi, Dad. Hey, kiddo. A New York woman and her impulsive, larger-than-life father try to find out if her husband is having an affair. Well, Zeke, we're keeping up a string of Sofia Coppola films. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a new one that just came out. Yes. This, so is this on Netflix? Is this no, Netflix? so this is getting a traditional cinema release, A24. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen nice. an A24 film. So is this, this beyond Luna, then? This I think Luna and I'm pretty sure Hoyts have it, too. Oh, God. Can we talk about, before we finish the show, Jake, can okay. we talk about our, Ameri- our pickle that we had last oh, week? Oh, yeah, we had a pickle last week, trying to watch American Pickle. I'm telling you, Hoyts definitely had a 9.15pm session that day. It was very, that's the first time I've ever gone into a cinema and gone, can I have a ticket? And they've gone, no. And I've gone, okay, <laughs> and I've left. <laughs> they said no when I left. That's basically what happened. Yeah. It well, was much, she was much nicer about it. She was like, very nice, but the, our only alternative choices were Antebellum Antebellum which is a horror film and uh, And all the After We Collide which we're not watching either of those at 9.30pm at night we're not doing that no especially when you want to go see Seth Rogen and himself talk to each other for 
an hour and a half. Exactly. Not not quite the same genre there. No, no. Um, that would that would be like going in for like a wine tasting and then just drinking a full bottle of whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, you know, you know what my trick is when you go to like a counter or a store and you you can't you're not going to buy anything. So okay. sa- say for example that happens and we're going to watch a movie, but the session doesn't exist, despite what is clearly existed. But whatever, I'm not going to get into that. Um, my my thing is to turn it around so that oh, I'm going to come back for a different reason in the future. So when I say the joke to her, I'm like oh, well, I guess we'll see you next week then. That's my way of, like, I don't feel bad leaving without paying money. Yeah. That's my trick. Yeah. Well, even she was, like, she went along with it. She yeah. agreed with us. I think she knew we weren't going to watch Phantom Bell. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with On The Rocks. On The Rocks.